Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Physical activity has been recognized as a key component of a holistic approach to recovery for people experiencing mental illness. The potential benefits can range broadly from a reduction in symptoms to an improvement in physical health and service engagement. This review aims to determine the effects of physical activity on depressive symptoms in people with mental illness. Secondary aims include investigating the effects of physical activity on symptoms of schizophrenia, anthropometric measures, aerobic capacity, and quality of life. The review includes trials examining adults with a diagnosis of a mental illness other than dysthymia or eating disorders. It also discusses such interventions as exercise programs and counseling, lifestyle interventions, and Tai Chi and yoga. Interventions are assessed against established physical activity guidelines. 39 eligible trials are identified. The primary meta-analysis finds that physical activity has a large effect on depressive symptoms. Physical activity interventions reduce depressive symptoms regardless of psychiatric diagnoses. Furthermore, these interventions reduce positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Given the available evidence, clinicians should refer patients to physical activity interventions to improve both mental and physical health outcomes. Previous randomized controlled clinical trials have shown that antidepressants augmented with second-generation antipsychotics, including aripipazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone, resulted in better treatment responses or higher remission rates in patients with major depressive disorder. However, long-term population-based study of these medications remains limited. In this article, the authors used a large-scale national database to survey how second-generation antipsychotics were implemented for major depressive disorder in a real-world setting and how effective they were. Their research received funding support from a Taiwanese nonprofit institution and the Taiwan government. The author's survey included 993 patients with major depressive disorder who received aripipazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, or spiridone augmentation for eight weeks or more. Outcome measures in this one-year mirror image study included length of psychiatric hospitalization, number of psychiatric admissions, and number of emergency room visits. For patients who received antipsychotic augmentation, all three outcome measures were significantly reduced. Subgrouping analysis for each antipsychotic drug revealed a significant reduction in the number of psychiatric admissions. The authors conclude that aripipazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone augmentation therapy could be effective in reducing psychiatric service utilization among patients with major depressive disorder.
While they acknowledge limitations of using government insurance claims data, the study affirms the positive findings from randomized controlled clinical trials of second-generation antipsychotics in patients with major depressive disorder. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, is a common mental illness that can be severely disabling and last for many years. Clinical trials show efficacy of available treatments, including serotonin reuptake inhibitors and cognitive behavioral therapy, in the short term. However, it is widely believed that only a few people suffering from this illness ever achieve substantial improvement. In this article, the authors aim to study the long-term remission rate as well as predictors of remission in adults with OCD. They chose the meta-analysis technique because of its ability to combine data of multiple studies leading to a better understanding of their results, which at times can be contradictory. They pooled data from 17 long-term follow-up studies of the treatment of OCD generating a pooled sample of more than 1,200 subjects. In a subgroup analysis, the authors compared the remission rate of patients from their home country, India, and those elsewhere. The meta-analysis shows that more than half of these patients achieved remission over the course of five years. In essence, outcome of OCD is not all that pessimistic. Those with onset in their youth having lower severity and shorter duration of illness, may do better in the long run. Surprisingly, remission rates were much higher in Indian patients compared to samples from other parts of the world. Further systematic study is needed to determine whether any cultural factors, such as greater family support and close treatment supervision by family, play a role in this finding. Overall, these findings emphasize the need for early recognition and aggressive treatment of OCD with both psychotherapy and medications. The authors also highlight the need for studies that focus not just on symptomatic, but also functional recovery. Tryptophan, an essential amino acid and the precursor to serotonin, is metabolized mainly by the chiurinin pathway. Both serotonin and chiurinin have been implicated in the pathophysiology of major depressive disorder. In previous studies, however, plasma tryptophan levels have not always been reported to be decreased in major depressive disorder. Therefore, the authors of this article performed a meta-analysis on previous studies, as well as their own data, to determine whether tryptophan concentration is actually lowered in patients with major depressive disorder. The authors identified 24 articles reporting case-controlled studies that examined plasma tryptophan in major depressive disorder through August 2013. The authors' own data were obtained by using the liquid chromatography mass spectrometry method to measure plasma tryptophan concentrations in 66 Japanese patients with major depressive disorder and 82 healthy controls. In the author's case-controlled study, the mean plasma tryptophan level was significantly lower in the patients 
than in controls. After adjustment for publication bias, the meta-analysis on the 24 previous studies and their own data showed significantly lower plasma tryptophan levels in patients with major depressive disorder with a modest effect size. Although when the analysis was restricted to unmedicated subjects, the authors found a large effect. In a subsequent meta-regression analysis, however, they found a weak association of decreased plasma tryptophan with depression severity. On the basis of these results, the authors conclude that they obtained convincing evidence for lower plasma tryptophan levels in patients with major depressive disorder, especially in unmedicated patients. The study received funding from the National Center of Neurology and Psychiatry, the Japan Health Sciences Foundation, and the Japanese government. Anxiety disorders have been shown to differ in their course, but it is unknown whether DSM diagnostic categories represent clinically relevant course trajectories. The authors of this article conducted a study to identify course trajectories using a data-driven method. They then examined whether these course trajectories correspond to DSM categories or whether other clinical indicators better differentiate them. Data from the prospective cohort study, known as the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, were used, which included 907 patients with panic disorder, agoraphobia, social phobia, or generalized anxiety disorder, according to DSM-4 criteria. Latent class growth analysis was conducted on the basis of symptoms of anxiety and avoidance assessed with the life chart interview covering a two-year time period. Three classes of patients were identified. 41.7% had minimal symptoms over time. 42.8% had a moderately severe chronic course, and 15.4% had a severe chronic course. Panic disorder and agoraphobia and social phobia both predicted chronicity. Generalized anxiety disorder predicted a severe chronic course. However, baseline severity, duration of anxiety, and disability better predicted severe chronic course trajectories than did DSM categories. Additionally, partner status, age of onset, childhood trauma, and comorbid depressive disorder predicted chronic courses. The authors conclude that course of anxiety is pleomorphic, with over 40% having a favorable course, thereby questioning the common notion of chronicity of anxiety disorders. Severity, duration of anxiety, and disability were better able to identify severe chronic course trajectories compared with DSM-4 categories. These findings facilitate the identification of chronic course trajectories of anxiety disorders in clinical care and support current debates on staging and profiling of mental disorders. Anxious depression may represent an important clinical subtype of major depressive disorder as patients with anxious depression are often more difficult to treat with traditional monominergic therapies 
than their non-anxious, depressed counterparts. Specifically, patients with anxious depression do not stay well for as long and report more side effects during treatment. Recent research suggests that the novel antidepressant ketamine is an effective treatment for otherwise difficult-to-treat depressions when given in controlled research settings. In this article, the authors examined a small sample of patients with treatment-resistant depression following a single infusion of ketamine. The anxious-depressed patients responded significantly better to ketamine compared to those with non-anxious depression, as evidenced by decreases in their depression rating scale scores over the 28 days following infusion. Anxious depressed patients who responded also took longer to relapse compared to those with non-anxious depression who also had a response. There were no differences in dissociative or psychotic side effects between the two groups. The authors conclude that these findings give promise for the role of novel medications in the treatment of patients with anxious depression, a traditionally difficult-to-treat subgroup of depressed patients. Funding for this work was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, National Institutes of Health, a NARSAD Independent Investigator Grant, and the Brain and Behavior Mood Disorders Research Award. Treatment effects can differ markedly among patients with major depressive disorder. Among other factors, these differences may be explained by normal personality variations. This study, sponsored by the Netherlands Scientific Organization, aims to gain more insight into the potential role of personality in treatment response. The authors investigate which personality profiles can be discerned among patients with major depressive disorder and whether these profiles predict patients' treatment responses. 146 patients with major depressive disorder participated in a randomized controlled trial. One group of patients received primary care, consisting of care as usual by their general practitioner with or without psychoeducation. The other group received specialized care, consisting of the same care and augmented with either cognitive behavior therapy or psychiatric consultation. All patients were followed up for one year with weekly depression measurements used to evaluate their treatment response. A personality questionnaire was administered at the start of the study to measure trait neuroticism, extraversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. Latent profile analysis of these traits showed that the patients fell into two distinct personality subgroups. A vulnerable subgroup with high neuroticism, low extroversion, and low conscientiousness. And a resilient subgroup with moderate neuroticism and extroversion, and comparatively higher agreeableness and conscientiousness. Although overall depression recovery was quicker in the resilient group, treatment response differed only in the vulnerable subgroup. Here, patients recovered more quickly with specialized treatment than with primary treatment alone. These findings indicate that normal personality variations can play a role in the treatment responses of depressed patients. They also suggest that in the future, 
pretreatment personality assessments can help clinicians decide whether specialized treatment may be of added value. Since the early 1930s, stimulants have played a consistent clinical role in psychopharmacology. Despite their known potential for cardiovascular risk, as well as their risk for dependence or abuse, dopaminergic stimulants have been used for over five decades as relatively safe and effective treatment augmentation options for unipolar and bipolar depression. In the past decade, the stimulant alternatives modafinil and armodafinil have entered the clinical arena. With their unique mechanism of action, these agents perhaps offer similar or greater therapeutic benefit and safety than their counterparts. A group affiliated with UCLA and supported by the Carl and Roberta Deutsch Foundation reviewed studies that have assessed the use of stimulants for depression. Their literature survey encompasses the risks and benefits of dopaminergic stimulants as well as modafinil and armodafinil as augmentation in refractory unipolar and bipolar depression. The authors conclude that modafinil and armodafinil have a greater number of supportive randomized controlled trials, lower cardiovascular risk potential, and negligible abuse potential compared to their dopaminergic counterparts. Antipsychotic drugs have greatly improved the treatment and prognosis of disabling psychotic symptoms. They therefore constitute the cornerstone in the treatment of patients suffering from schizophrenia spectrum disorders. However, like all other types of medication, antipsychotic drugs are not without side effects. In recent years, it has become increasingly recognized that antipsychotics may be associated with the development of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases. In fact, some studies have suggested that the treatment with antipsychotics may reduce life expectancy by up to 20 years due to these metabolic side effects. Despite great endeavors to resolve these issues, the mechanisms whereby antipsychotic drugs induce weight gain and dysmetabolism remain unclear. However, understanding these mechanisms is of pivotal importance for the clinical management of metabolic and cardiovascular disturbances in antipsychotic-treated patients. In this article, which was supported by Lundbeck A.S., the authors investigated 50 male patients treated with antipsychotics and 93 healthy male volunteers. Although the groups were carefully matched on age, body mass index, and waist circumference, the patients had a compromised cardiovascular risk profile and exhibited emerging signs of overt metabolic disturbances. However, gut hormones known to affect appetite and glucose metabolism appeared not to be influenced by antipsychotic treatment. The authors conclude that these findings provide important new insight into the metabolic side effects of antipsychotics and put emphasis on the importance of implementing metabolic screening into psychiatric practice. They believe their findings may help develop effective 
preventive measures and stimulate a multidisciplinary clinical management of the metabolic disturbances and cardiovascular complications associated with antipsychotic drugs. A number of studies have investigated the possibility that different types of depression should be treated with specific types of antidepressants. Starting with this idea, a group of researchers hypothesized that depressed patients with a high level of negative affectivity, in other words, guilt, irritability, hostility, fear, and anxiety, would respond better to a drug that boosts serotonin than to one not believed to act directly on the serotonergic system. In a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the researchers reanalyzed data from a study in which patients with major depressive disorder were randomly assigned to either escitalopram or bupropion. For the current analysis, the authors calculated a negative affectivity score that was estimated from study ratings. They found that negative affectivity was a critical factor in determining treatment response. Patients with low negative affectivity responded similarly to the two treatments, while in patients with high negative affectivity, escitalopram showed a significant advantage. The data suggests that depressed patients with high negative affectivity may respond preferentially to antidepressants that selectively enhance serotonin neurotransmission. The authors note that their findings do not have clinical implications because their study was retrospective and used an unproven approximation of negative affectivity. Therefore, replication will be necessary. Many patients with major depressive disorder do not achieve full remission with initial antidepressant therapy. Clinicians must be prepared to assess and treat residual symptoms to reduce patients' risk of relapse. This commentary summarizes the content and outcomes of the CME program designed to provide assessment tools and treatment strategies for patients who experience partial response to antidepressant therapy. The authors also discuss areas of future educational needs related to the treatment of depression and residual symptoms. Some observational studies have suggested that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may improve depression outcomes. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at the existing clinical data on this topic, including four controlled trials that showed improvement of response in treatment-resistant depression with celecoxib. Dr. Andrade also discusses possible medical risks associated with the use of these drugs. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the September issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast your place for psychiatry sound bites.